about it because what happens is if you keep failing the program, if you keep failing sessions and you're expecting too much of yourself, it just leads to so much negativity. It leads to just you beating yourself up, some negative self-talk, and you lose a lot of motivation. And, um, you know, we we talk about this almost every year as we come into the winter months uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. The average pro athlete and specifically the average pro triathlete or cyclist or runner will train between 25 to 35 hours per week. Yet the average age grouper probably has a maximum of 10 to 15 hours to train per week. And that's an absolute maximum, more realistically, about six to 10 hours. So why is it that we think we should be on the same program as a pro? And that's what we want to discuss in today's episode. Because as always on this podcast, we want to use what the pros are doing to influence our decision making. But there's a difference between modeling what works and setting yourself up for failure because you're trying to stick to an impossible program like the pros. So that's today's topic as well as a lot of other stuff that that is what's happening in the professional world of sports. Dad, our first segment for every episode is what are you grateful for? Yeah, it's a good topic today. Um, Had lots of uh, discussions about it uh, with some of our athletes exactly about that topic. Um, So it's a really good timing. Um, My gratitude um, and we discussed this earlier and I kind of, um, I'm a bit um, un- uneasy about discussing my recovery from my back operation, but I want to I want to use it uh, in a positive way to help um, to help everybody out there get some perspective uh, about what they're doing in their everyday life, and um, and also to uh, understand that there will be periods where you yourself may have some mishap where you have to come back from some sort of uh, illness or or injury. Um, so, so I kind of want to uh, say um, how grateful I am about um, the things I can be doing, positive things I can be doing while I'm coming from um, a recovery a recovery phase, which is going to last for um, up to twelve weeks. And um, one of the things I'm grateful for along that journey is that there's so many good sporting things on. Um, at the moment, um, when I can't actually spend a few of my hours, maybe it's ten or fifteen hours training, I can actually really concentrate on the, the sporting events that are happening right now. And obviously, the Giro, um, the tours coming up, um, a lot of the uh, the soccer around the world um, is is coming to its conclusion in in Europe. Um, our particular team, Celtic. Uh, Going for the treble, um, and the, the fairy tale story for those who have been following uh, Wrexham United in the English um, English leagues um, um, and and the Diamond League. Um, it's all starting in uh, in the summer for Europe, um, and yeah, I'm just really grateful that, that I've got this opportunity to, to actually you know spend time watching some fantastic uh, sporting events that are going on around the world. Yeah, but uh, I think it's great to we did say that we're going to update your listeners on your recovery journey and and how it's looking and how you're approaching it mentally. It's a pretty painful process with how slow it is, and you know you did say that the recovery period is twelve weeks, but that's kind of just the recovery till you're sort of even back cycling, let alone you know starting from scratch again and you know starting from almost ground zero. Then you've probably got another you know, three to six months of of work ahead of you in terms of training to get your fitness back. So it is a it's a long road of recovery and you do um, you have been really using that to get across our own ath- athletes about um, 
almost a bit of perspective, right? Yeah, and um, it's really important at this um, uh, period that I want to get across a few things and uh, I, I have to actually give a lot of the advice um, that I've been giving out over a long period of many years and I have to take that on board myself. Um, and so I think I think it's really great that I have to go through this um, because um, I'm going to get um, a whole lot of good perspective myself about how hard it is uh, for people who have been injured um, and their their um, method that they use to get themselves back to, um, you know, the Remco Evenepoel example is a classic where, you know, barely able to walk and, and then he comes out and wins a world title, which we spoke about uh, in the last podcast. So, so I really want to um, share my experience and, and the way I'm going to go about uh, thinking about my recovery and, and trying to implement a program that um, can maybe help some others who are in a similar position. Um, so to start with, um, I certainly, you know, in the last, this is week three and a half now from my operation, um, I've been able to sit up a lot more and walk around a lot more than I have uh, in the first two weeks. It was pretty average. Um, so week three and four has been a lot better and each day I'm getting better. Um, I get to see my super surgeon tomorrow, Mr. Ian Wang. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what he has to say about my progress. Um, but but generally, um, I've been able to start from literally, you know, a minute's worth of walking um, and I covered 40 or 50 metres um, and now, you know, two weeks of doing that, I'm able to progress to, you know, uh, 50, 50 metres to 100 metres to 400 metres um, and got to myself to a kilometre of just slow walking, which took 20 minutes. So that's uh, that's a, a kilometre per for every 20 minutes. So that doesn't seem to be such a good pace, does it? But um, but they're, they're the things I have to do and I have to take it slow and let my uh, body recover and heal from the operation um, so that I can actually not be in any more pain um, from um, or cause the, the operation to, to be um, uh, rendered useless by rushing myself back into uh, things that I shouldn't be doing. So I've got to allow my body to recover first. So, so that's the first thing, and I've got that I've got that clear in my mind. I'm going to uh, do everything that uh, my surgeon uh, tells me to do, and not anymore. I'm going to follow the process and and make sure I'm more conservative than being more gung ho, which is my 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 normal approach to everything I do is um, go go as hard as I can so I can get back as quickly as I can. And in this situation, I'm going to take the opposite approach and give my back the, every opportunity to, to heal properly and and not be, have regrets about doing something silly um, that I shouldn't have been doing, which might actually put uh, put back my, my recovery. So, so that's the way I'm thinking about that. Uh, and I understand that I have a great level of fitness over 30 or 40 years. I've banked a lot of weeks of training, a lot of days of training, a lot of years of training. So I'm I'm absolutely trusting that process, and which is what I tell everybody who's coming back from injury. You've got great levels of fitness. Um, you've got layers of fitness that you've been um, putting into your body over the years. Trust that that, that will come back uh, to serve you well. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, know that I'm not going to panic about um, uh, losing my fitness so quickly and, and it's, as it's only been three and a half weeks and a good example of understanding how my fitness is disappearing. Um, obviously, I can look up um, performance management chart in tra- training peaks and that would tell me that it's clearly clearly going in, in the wrong direction. I'm not even worried about that. But one of the things that is really viable to me is my resting heart rate and I've been a person 
who's taken their resting heart rate for literally 20 years. So I know what my resting heart rate is most mornings when I wake up. And now that I've got Aura Ring or any of the, the gadgets that you've got these days, um, it will tell you what your lowest resting heart rate was overnight. And mine is always between 44 to 48, 49, 50. Depending on how hard I was training the day before, it can be around 50 if I've had some hard sessions. If I've had some recovery sessions, it'd probably be 44. Uh, if I've got things that are on my mind, it'll probably be around 48, 50. So I've got all this information that I know uh, about how my, um, my recovery for a particular day is after a night's sleep. And interestingly enough, the day that I had my operation, my resting heart rate the night before was probably a bit higher. It was around 50. And that whole week before that, it was around 44 to 45. So already I had anxiety the night before the operation. Um, and that was something that was, you know, really hit me straight away. Was geez, Five beats is quite a bit when I've been used to seeing it around the 44, 45, 46 mark. So straight away, I'm at 50. And then from that point on, I have slowly progressed over two and a half weeks and I woke up this morning and it was 60. So the last one week, it's been going from 55 up to 60. Um, the periods where I was in most pain, it was, it was also hovering around the 55 to 60. So that's, you know, when I'm at 60, that's actually 15 beats higher than I have been for probably 20 years. Um, on average, 15 beats higher. So that tells you how much strain and stress the body is after a... Uh, an operation like I've I've been through, so so they're they're really good indicators to tell me that geez I I am probably losing fitness because I'm not doing much during the day I'm sitting around and um, doing you know walking for for twenty twenty odd minutes is not actually contributing much to uh, my fitness and it's contributing to my rehab but it's not helping my fitness that my fitness is continuing to fall so I have to be really clear in my mind that that's okay because I've got that much stored fitness in my bank that when I start training again, it will come back quickly. And that's what I'm hanging on to. Um, so that's one point. Um, understanding that, and I'm trying to give you uh, examples to everybody listening out there, what are the things I'm going to use my mindset as? And I can be tricking my mind if I want to, but I'm going to play that game and, and it's really helpful. And the more I talk about it to other people that I'm coaching, um, and one of the things that I'm really um, pushing is uh, getting perspective. Uh, perspective of this is a situation I'm in um, and understand there's a whole lot of people in a worse situation than I'm in, but I'm in this situation and now it's made me realize how much I miss uh, my activities, my training, whether it's swimming or, or riding or in or running or whatever my activities are, I absolutely miss it because it's taken away from me right now. So I've got this perspective of, you know what, there's days where I feel really bad, I don't want to train and I feel like, oh, geez, this is too hard. But now when it's taken away from me, I would give ev everything to, to go and ride my bike right now. But I know that I can't for this particular period of weeks. Um, and, and I'm okay with that, again, because I'm going to trust the process. But I've certainly got... Uh, ingrained in my mind that I actually do love what I do. I love training and being fit and being healthy and looking forward to the days where I can get back into it and, and know that it's going to be hard periods, but I'm okay with that because it's what I want to do. And, and it's became very clear to me. Um, so, so that's kind of really, I'm, I'm quite happy about that actually, that it's, it's given me a reset to, to understand that uh, maybe I was getting a little bit stale um, over the last year or two. 
Um, but a reset like this where something's taken away from you where you actually can't do it, it just instantly gives you perspective. It's it's It just can't be um, overstated, I don't think. And it, it, we've spoken about these topics before and it can sometimes just come off as a classic cliche, you know, get some perspective. Uh, there's someone off worse off than you, that kind of thing. And we hear these these kind of moral tales from when we're children, you know, like, um, don't complain. There's there's someone worse off than your position, and it gets really old really quickly. And as you, you get older, you kind of dismiss those cliches because you might be pissed off about a situation, or you might be feeling stale or or negative about your situation. And we sort of have a rule in our in our family that uh, it's like a no complaining rule, uh, and it it seems really trivial, but it it makes such a massive difference in all complaining does is is um, make you feel bad about the situation, make you feel worse. It definitely doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. And it's really bad thing for the person you're complaining to because then you're putting them in a negative state and they have to show empathy towards you and think about your negative situation. It's really a selfish thing to do. And and it kind of comes back to um, the whole reason why we do this segment of the podcast, the gratitude thing. You know, when you have this perspective, suddenly you're grateful for you know what you did have and the fact that you could train and and yeah, we, we're not here to sit here and, and preach you know, stoic philosophy, although I think it's so simple but it is just so much more powerful than we, we give credit to. And and uh, it really, the way you, you're viewing your situations and the way you view training and the way you view um, your your experience and whether you are grateful for it or not and whether you have, have good perspective really influences how you feel about your day and how you feel about your week. And I just think that can't be, yeah, can't be overstated. Like I said, I think it really shapes um, your enjoyment level of your training and your enjoyment level of, of your preparation for a race or something. And I just think that's so important. So as, as cliche as it can be and as simple as a statement it can be, like get some perspective of what you're saying, when you're actually in it, you do realize how powerful it is. And it's, it's just a good reminder for us when we're um, feeling negative about things. Yeah, and look, um, I've got to be grateful. We're really we're extending the gratitude because I think it's important. I really do, and um, we we don't flippantly do gratitude in our podcast because it's something to fill in time. We actually want we want everybody who's listening to our podcast to put this into their into their daily living uh, because it it is a different mindset. It is is a great way for you to think about things differently. And you've had so many examples with uh, with your early days as a as a, a fitness uh, um, um, almost guru with the group that you had, where people were just having so many good outcomes from changing their mindset at 6 a.m. in the morning when they had to had to say in front of a group of 20 people what they're grateful for. Um, and, and I just thought that was super powerful. And and for me, uh, I just think when people are – and I'm really grateful for this as well. When people ring me or I'm ringing them to say, hey, great great training session on the weekend or really, really fantastic race, your half, half marathon time is the best you've ever done. And they're coming back with me saying, oh, thanks, thanks so much. And how's, how's your uh, – How's your rehab coming along? And and I can have two answers here. I can go, oh, geez, it sucks. I feel really down. And and I can then give that person such a downer experience from from their euphoric, um, you know, great training that I rang them to talk about. And all of a sudden, I'm making it a negative experience by telling them how crap I feel. And I'm I'm intentionally um, pushing myself to be not negative about it. You know, what are the positive things? Every day I'm getting closer to, to actually being able to train again. Um, every day the pain's getting less. Um, and, you know, thanks for asking, but uh, I feel like I'm on a journey and I'm looking forward to, uh, and I'm super motivated. I'm looking forward to the day I can ride and super motivated to train really well 
Um, you know, it could be 12 weeks of no training and then 12 weeks of getting myself back to um, the state where I was before the actual operation and that actually adds up to 24 weeks or it could be closer to 30 weeks depending on, you know, that's almost, a, you know, going on to two-thirds of a year. But But my motivation is that I've got a long time to be active. It's just, you know, it'll be gone in a blink of an eye. In three years' time, that 12-week period or 24-week period will be insignificant. It's huge now um, because it's, 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 in, it's right in my face at the moment. But, but I really want to I, I wanna thank the people for asking, firstly, about um, my progress. But I don't want to be doom and gloom. I want to be, you know, I'm, I'm on a journey. We can learn lots from this. Um, and and help each other along along that that journey of um, having having some good experiences, you know. And I heard Garrett Thomas say, you know, for every bad experience you have, it makes the good experiences so much more worthwhile. And that's another cliche, but it is so true because it means more to you when you've had so many things that you feel like you've been, you know, didn't things didn't go your way, and it wasn't, you know, out of your, it was out of your control, and all of a sudden. Um, you know, another example would be Roglic in the 2020 Tour de France when he lost the last stage time trial to Bogacha. Well, he's turned that around and beaten Cameron Thomas in exactly the same scenario. So, you know, there's another example of um, adversity. And boy, did he make, you know, he felt unbelievably satisfied about, uh, you know, he felt bad for Garant Thomas, but, but you know, to, to turn it around and and actually do exactly what happened to him, do it to someone else, um, and to end up winning the, the Giro because of that was pretty bloody impressive, I reckon. Yeah, and it, it's a real fine line here of what you're talking about because it's not it's, – I think this is really important. It's not um, pretending that everything's positive and everything's okay and just – and, you know, if someone says, yeah, how's your back surgery? You're not sitting there and pretending that everything's happy-go-lucky. Uh but you're not you're not dwelling on on what's happened. I think that that's the key, and that's that's the the whole purpose of the question. What are you grateful for? And it's um, you you know, when someone says, "How is your back surgery?" Obviously, you'd rather not have the back surgery. You know, obviously, you'd rather not have the problem in the first place. Um, you'd rather still be training, not have to go through this process. That's just kind of a given. But you're not going to sit there and just say, you know, obviously it sucks. But you're not going to sit there and just say, you look, it sucks. It's hard. Instead, you're trying to focus on, well, um, I've been really enjoying. As you said, I'm grateful that I've, I've been enjoying the sport. I've had some time off to relax and have a bit of a reset and all those things you just mentioned. That's the purpose of the question. So. I think that is a really important uh, distinction to make. And uh, yeah, this, it's funny, this gratitude segment, you know, sometimes it's a minute from us where it's just something simple and sometimes it's, it's extended out like this. And uh, I guess I'll finish off with mine and I do really want to uh, talk about what uh, an experience we had last week, which I did not think if you had asked me at the start of the year that you told me I was going to have this experience, I would have said yes, but uh, we actually got invited to go to a race in China last week. And so five traveler riders um, got invited to do this uh, cycling race uh, in Shanghai um coincidentally called the Giro d'Italia event um even though it was uh, in Shanghai they do these kind of Giro d'Italia um almost grand fondo events um around the world and um yeah just uh as I said I did not think I would end up in China this year especially after the last few years of what's happened they only just opened to international visitors last month for the first time in three years so to be there was a really uh truly surreal experience uh it's hard to explain. A lot of people ask me what it was like. I said it felt like stepping into a different universe. It's a completely different world and way of living. Um, and yeah, to get to do a 90K race. And it was, I tell you what, it was a lot more than a Grand Fondo. Uh, we were told that it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, 
you know, super high standard. And then we got there and there was three pro continental Asian teams there that had turned up that had, you know, team car. And um, it was funny that the day before the race, you had to go get your registration number and stuff. And we're all pinning the numbers onto our bike like you normally do. And they had their team mechanics um, cleaning their bikes and putting all their numbers on. And we're going, geez, what have we stepped into here? But um, truly an amazing experience to, to ride around Shanghai. I, I, I just, we were just, I'm so grateful I got to have that because um, it was nothing like I've ever done. Yeah, uh, it, it was uh, one of those things you are very gr- grateful for and it's perfect for the gratitude segment. But just explore a little bit more um, about what it, what it was and, and you know, the fact that uh, five guys, like-minded guys who are loving their cycling uh, were able to go together and travel together um, and be really well looked after by the, uh, the organisers of this event um, and be treated like um, professionals and um, – t- Tell us a little bit about how how that felt, and and you got a little glimpse and of, of what it would be like to be uh, on a mini world tour sort of experience. Oh, spot on. We it, it, it was really a really well put together event, uh, but specifically we, as you said, we were just completely looked after. So we locked up at the airport and we got taken to our hotel in a bus. Um, you know, you stay at the hotel, all the riders stayed at the same hotel. There was buffet breakfast each morning. The tour guides took us around, which was very necessary because um, we were in the outskirts of Shanghai and no one spoke English. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you prepare for the race um, as like a pro. Um, and it was a, it was two days of racing uh, and, there was a team's time trial on the first day, which we really would have liked to have done, but it was full a full event. Uh, so the day two was the 90K stage race. It was a completely televised event. Uh, so it was, you know, you rock up at the start line and and uh, I think last year's event had a million viewers, which seems like so much. I mean, in compared to China's population of a billion and a million is not much, but it, it's a fully, completely, um, really high-funded uh, TV event and so when you're racing this it, the, the entire road was blocked I've never been on a course so blocked off um, as, as like it was run like a pro race they had 3,000 cops along the along the route um, staff volunteers it was um, the race itself you know just never experienced anything like it riding through these closed streets and villages of China uh, it was it was just so special I just felt so lucky to be a, a part of it all yeah and uh and you know the race itself. Um, the expectations from us was to just go and do your best and have some fun um, as a team. Um, we're, we're a team of five, and uh, a lot of the Thai teams and um, other Asian teams had you know up to nineteen, twenty riders. Um, so you're a little bit outnumbered, and probably uh, the level was a bit above above our level. But you know your attitude was great, and um, you know our team tactics were you know just see what happens and make sure that we work as a team. And how did that actually? Um, how did that end up? And uh, I've, I've put some stuff on uh, social media with uh, you and the break. How did, tell us how that eventuated. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was great talking. We had a team meeting with you once we rocked up and found out the competition. Because we're going there thinking we don't know what the race is going to be like. You know, is it going to be a, a decent grand fondo where you're averaging 40Ks an hour, 30 or 40Ks an hour? And then we quickly you know, spoke around and found out once we were there who these teams were and how the quality and we, re- we knew it was going to be up really high quality fast paced race so we all got on the phone to you and just just to, just to set the scene before you talk about that it, 
you weren't in the Grand Fondo. The Grand Fondo was after your race. Your <laughs> yes. race was 100 selected riders yes. from all over the world. Yes. Um, and, you, you know, you happened to be picked up at the airport and the guy who got in the car with you was none other than Andy Sleck, <laughs> yes. um, you know, Tour de France winner. So yeah. so I'm um, just giving a little bit of perspective here. So go on. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And uh, hopefully we'll have Andy on the podcast soon because um, I had a great chat to him in our hour chat, hour bus ride um, from the airport to the hotel. And it was pretty cool to get to um, have, a, have a real in-depth conversation uh, with a Tour de France winner. Um, but yeah, no, sorry. So it was, you know, in the actual Grand Fondo behind us, they started 20 minutes after us. There, there was a few thousand people riding. Um, but yes, ours was um, 120 riders, I think. And yeah, we had we had a chat with you about Team Tackers and we're going, we don't know the riders. A lot of them knew each other because they raced each other on the Asian circuit. Uh, we don't know really how it's going to play out. It's going to be, so, it's, a far, it's a flat course, so it's going to be super fast. Um, does that mean it's going to be really hard for a break to get away? Uh, how do we try and shut down breaks with five of us or varying levels of um, ability informed? We try and pick someone to ride for. Uh, and so we had that great chat with you and it's a good example of team tactics. Um, you're sort of saying that your big, big message was you've got to be in the race. You know, it doesn't matter about their ability. Um, you've got to be, you've got to do things to, to be a part of the race. And, and there's no pressure from us because we're turning up to an event that, you know, it's not, it's not an event we trained for specifically. Um, so the best advice I thought you kind of gave was have some fun and take some risks and see what happened. And, um, that resulted in, in me getting in the breakaway. And it was funny because, because, uh, the race started with, um, no neutral zone, which is pretty different. Um, and he, and the race, uh, organizer kind of said, you know, uh, just use a bit of common sense at the start, uh, making sure that everyone gets out safely. And we just knew that wasn't going to be the case. And the gun went and it was just helpful leather from the, from the gun. It was just, I did my peak power and peak heart rate in the first nine minutes of the race. Um, <laughs> to give some, 90 kilometer race. To give some perspective. Uh, we all, three of us hit over 200 beats per minute heart rate, which is just crazy. Uh, my heart rate never gets over 192 and 193, maybe 195 in a bike race. Um, the only time I've ever hit 200 was when I had COVID. And so I assumed that it was something to do with COVID that hit that. And so to hit 200 BPM in the, the first nine minutes just shows what the, what was happening. And it was just, it was just going, there were guys just sprinting all out. We had five of us, so we were trying to, you know, a few of us just shut, not shut down attacks, but go with any moves in case they, they stuck from the very start. Um, and it was probably the, I don't know, maybe the, I'd gone with two, Mitch had gone with two, Nick had gone with two, um, uh, our guys, you know, trying to like just jump across and be part of it. Um, we could see the same teams trying to send two guys at a time. And it, it seemed like maybe the at the 10 or 15 minute mark after a dozen moves that tried to go and it's always that case when everyone just starts to feel that fatigue a little bit and the and the group just started to back off and a few guys went and I just happened to jump on a guy's wheel who I knew was a good rider as he went I saw him winding up a bit and then that's the break formed and there was nine of us um that formed the break and that was it for the rest of the race the break stayed away um, and it was a pretty uh yeah pretty cool experience yeah, and so obviously we can't leave it at that. We have to actually explore what happened in the race. Um, the the other Trivello guys are now happy that one one rider is in the break. Um, probably in hindsight, um, you weren't the best uh, endurance rider to be in the break, but that's that's the luck of uh, of having a crack and and uh, being at the right time at the right place. Um, and so you're finding yourself in a break with guys who are riding probably at above your level. Yeah. When the break was forming, I was absolutely on my limit. That was just me 
I was really hanging on and the the brakes are forming and they're flicking their elbows to come through. And I'm saying to the guys, just let me sit on for a second. I've come across. There was kind of four guys there and then five of us went across and they were fucking screaming at me. And that's, that's I guess, pro racing is they're trying to intimidate me. And I'm, I'm just going, I actually can't just, and I kind of, they let me sit in for a couple of turns. Um, and then we, all nine people started working together and I was seriously on my limit. And I was just going, I, I cannot risk going through a turn here because I, um, I might get dropped. And I missed one more and then one of the guys just went like nuts at me. Um, and then I tried to call someone else in and there was – so there was three guys on one team in the break and one tie team and there was three guys from another tie team but they're both tie teams and they're both kind of working together. So it was almost six out of the nine were all kind of part of one team even though, was, they, were, even though they were distinctly two different teams. And then there was three of us that were kind of isolated. And uh, yeah, I, I tried to go through and two of them um, – just sat behind me and let the wheel go and said, we're not going to close the gap. And it was, you know, it was a two or three meter gap to the, to the back of the um, breakaway. And they said, we'll, we'll sit back. If you want to drop off, we'll sit behind you. Um, and within five seconds, the gap was eight, 10 meters. And I, they just bluffed me. And I just thought I have to, I don't want to miss this break here. Cause I don't, I don't know if I'll get back on. They might just jump me because two of them are together. Um, and so I put in a huge effort to get onto the back um and that put me so far in the red zone and i just thought i have to just try and roll through with the group and not do a turn on the front just roll straight over a lot of the guys were doing turns between 10 and 30 seconds um and once i started doing that they let me do that they didn't they didn't ask for more than that as soon as i got to the front i just rolled over um and i just spent the next 10 minutes surviving just trying to get my breath back and then it kind of settled into a pretty good roll and luckily i was able to the next you know 30k 40k because i looked down and i've gone we're 25ks into the race i am absolutely fucked you know i am um just ah uh, yeah i i thought how am i going to go another 75k here or 60k um, but yeah you just as with everything in cycling um it always you know can calm down you just gotta i said to myself just survive the next minute just just try and get through the next minute and hopefully the tempo goes down and that's what happened and um yeah the, the it just kind of settled like that for the next until about the um, 60k mark, and we were getting time updates um, on the board, which is pretty funny. It sat at a minute for a while, and while it was at a minute, everyone was working pretty well together. And then at about the 60k mark, it was two and a half minutes. And once that happened, then everyone started looking at each other, and I knew that fireworks were going to happen. And then, yeah, guys just started um, jumping, um, and they were in a great position because you know one of their riders could go, and it would be up to the basically non-team members to chase them because the rest of the team just sit there and and say well that's our guy so we're not going to chase him and then once we bring them back the next guy would jump and it just it just felt like we were, we were in a horrible position and as you said about you know form i if we had team radios very early on i would have been screaming in the radio to our guys get up here you know get out of the peloton and get up here their mindset was kind of like well we've got a guy in the break so we don't have to chase um but i was completely isolated up there i was easily the weakest rider out of the nine in the breakaway i was outnumbered it was just a really poor position to be in uh, and that's just that's not really trying to complain about it it's just the fact of where i was in the race and the two guys back in the group are stronger than me so it's much much more beneficial if they're up at the front so if i yeah if we had our time in hindsight if we had team radios or something we would have probably said get away from the group, try and bridge a gap across the breakaway, which would have been incredibly hard in itself, but that would have been our best um, option. And yeah, basically how the race unfolded was um, they just kept jumping. I was <laughs> I was already on my limit, let alone trying to chase down every attack. Um, a few guys got up the road. Me and another guy who were kind of isolated and have team members were sort of rolling on the front 
trying to limit some damage, but not really doing much. Um, I thought that's how it play how it play out to the end, and then with about ten k to go, um, I ended up crashing, half crashing around a corner. Um, the guy in front of me saw the corner too late. I was just kind of on my limit, so I was just looking his back wheel. I wasn't looking up, so that was my mistake. I came around this corner way too fast, and I went into the dirt. Um, and kind of only half fell. I, I managed to get my leg out and my hand kind of came down, but it was in some grass and I didn't fully crash. But by the time I got my, back on my bike, they were already 30 meters away, 40 meters away. And then that was it. I couldn't, couldn't close it back. So I had to just ride the last 10 K solo. And that was my race. <laughs> oh, it's a great story. And, uh, so many lessons in there, isn't there about, um, you know, uh, how to communicate in a, in a really big event and how important uh, race radio is um, to, to get your message across. And, and also, um, is it is it advisable that the guy you don't have in the break is the one that the guy you do have in the break is the one you don't want to have in the break, probably um, with the level of uh, riders that you're riding against. And, and you know, who knows, the other guys in our team might not have done any different than you. Um, but but we, we, we sort of don't want to let the, the – the breakaway get four minutes you want to you want to keep them within a minute so that so that it is an opportunity if, if something happens to you that you know at one of our guys can get across and they're, they're just little examples and it's always easy in hindsight but but the goal was just to have a good experience and and learn a lot and and another race under your belt and and you know you, you learn so much about um about racing at that level and how how you know, easy it is to get isolated, and how good it is to be in a break, and how bad it is to be in a break that's above you. And and what do you do? And do you do more turns? Do you less turns? Do you be bluffed into doing something you don't want to do? That you know, all the questions and, and, and analysis you and I had after the race was uh, was really was really good. And that's that's sort of what would a club racer would expect to have happen if he, for example, if someone's been riding D grade and they've been winning D grade races, and all of a sudden the the, the race director puts them up to C grade for next week and now they're in a, a group that they're out of their limit. Do they change their tactics in riding? Do they go on the break or do they be more conservative, a more defensive style of riding, etc.? So so these are all scenarios that, you know, as a bike rider you're going to face and whether whether you're in a, in a, you know, a, a Chinese representative race or whether you're in a local club race, the same scenarios are happening. Um, club races don't have a lot of alliance with team members um, as you do in a in a, a sort of a, a race like that where it's specifically around teams but but there's a lot of alliances in club races where there's four or five mates who won't chase other mates so it probably is a team's event anyway um, but yeah they're great lessons and uh, and especially for the guys back in the bunch not knowing what the scenario was up the road they didn't know that you know they knew that the, the guys up the road were damn good riders, but they didn't know how you were coping with that, or you know, so they were doing their best to to not let anybody bridge. Um, so you know, in hindsight, they should have been keeping the bunch, the breakaway closer to to the bunch and the peloton, so that if something did happen, they could see that that was happening and they could change their tactics. Um, always easy in hindsight, but lots of good lessons um, and, and a great experience. Yeah, for sure. And I guess to finish off, I did ask you after I just said I, I was I was constantly going through situ- the situations in my head. What are my options here? What should I do? I knew the attacks would come at some point. I knew that would just counter. Um, I just felt completely stuck. And and afterwards, you just said pretty bluntly, um, had to completely call their bluff back. And just say, um, my stronger riders are behind me. Um, I'm not doing any work. And and if guys, you know, if you have to let guys go up the road, do that because um, what you said was really right. They're all competitive races. They might let one of their guys go up the road or two, um, but they're going to want to race as well. You know, they're not they're not there to sit there and come sixth, seventh, eighth. Um, and so 
just if if that means letting you know two guys go up the road and then the race becomes a bit more for third or something um, that was my best kind of tactic in that situation which um, was helpful to to sort of hear afterwards um, so we do want to talk about uh, a few other topics and uh, the main one is the Jura because so many cool things happened in the race that, that's worth talking about and um, uh, as you mentioned before, you know, Roglic just beat Thomas in the final time trial, which uh, was really exciting and uh, I will say that a week ago, uh, I said to some of the boys, um, Roglic is going to win this, uh, Thomas looked strong, everyone thought Thomas was going to take it home, but I, I, just, I just, watching the way he was riding, I thought, I think Roglic is going to take this from Thomas and um, yeah, he got him on the final time trial. He was down by 26 seconds. Um, going into the time trial, he beat Roglic, He beat Thomas by 40 seconds, um, so taking the lead by by 14 seconds total. And that was with a mechanical from Roglic. So he probably would have beaten him by a minute um, in the actual TT, which is crazy to think about. But something that Thomas said, which is just so funny for everyone that's a usual listener of the podcast, they said after how you're feeling bittersweet, you tried your hardest, um, you lose in the last one. It's a lot of, you know, like, he, he said he was so happy to be in this form because he just wasn't even near this form three to six months ago. So if someone had told him he was going to take second at the Giro, he said he would have been stoked. But to lose it in the last stage, he's just so disappointed. And one of the things really stood out to me, he said the manner in which he lost maybe hurts more because um, he felt like he really died in the back half of that time trial. He said maybe if I started easier and finished stronger, but I still lost, it, it might feel a bit easier. Or maybe it would have been a different result. Um, and that to us is just almost infuriating because it's like, how often are we going to see, you know, top level athletes kind of do a worse performance and make that mistake? And it's it, it's potentially costing the Giro. Yeah. And look, if he had started easier and finished stronger, Roglic may still have beaten him. Mm-hmm. But the, the point is he would have felt better about his actual execution. Yeah. Um, and, and look... I remember, I think it was probably pre-COVID, um, the, the Dauphiné time trial. Um, uh, I think it was Garant Thomas um, uh, did did uh, the actual, normally the Dauphiné does the time trial either on the actual tour time trial course or something similar. Um, and Garant Thomas uh, on that particular day and that stage on the time trial um, blew the field apart in the first half of that time trial. And then... I think he was 15 seconds up on all of the the big GC contenders for the tour, which was on a couple of weeks after the Dauphiné. And by the time they finished that time trial, he came fifth and he'd lost 30-something seconds in the second half. And I remember on a podcast, we talked about that actual performance and saying, even the pros make a mistake in execution. And he he got interviewed and he said, oh, I can't believe how foolish I was. I, I just rode way above my level and paid dearly for it and faded so badly that you know, and I've learned my lesson and, and here he is, you know, the point I'm making is they can continue to make mistakes just like we do all the time. And and just because you do it once, it doesn't mean you're going to have to do it again. You have to really keep concentrating and it's a great message that the pros at the top of their game continue can, can continue to make the same mistakes repeatedly. But, you know, if if he wasn't getting information in his in his ear saying that he was – seven seconds down on Roglic already in the first 4K or going to nine seconds down, would he have ridden that differently? And my my guess is he would have um, because the pressure is now coming from an outside source telling him that his competition is already ahead of him. Um, and I think there's a lot to dissect in that. And, and 
I was saying to you, imagine if he didn't hear any of that information. He just rode to his numbers um, and then came home strong like he would normally do from the experience that he has as a time trialist. Um, and that if he got to the end of the race and did as hard as he could, he would have to be happy that if he lost by 40 seconds uh, because he's done the best he could. But by having information telling him that he's already down after 5 or 7K, I'm not sure if it's – a. Con- a positive contribution. It changes the mindset that, oh, I'm I'm obviously in a race with someone else, but I'm not trusting my process here. Um, and you'd be looking down at your numbers saying, well, he's beating me by seven or eight seconds. This is the best numbers I can do. And But what does he do? He would try to ride above that. And as we know, you know, riding above your capabilities might work one out of a hundred. Uh, you might be on a great day. Your form might might change to be, you know, one of those great days in your career. But but the other 99 times, it's going to be a poor outcome. Um, and, you know, when we use athletics as an example, the every world record from 5,000 metres to marathon is, is won in a negative split, which means the second half is faster than the first half. So, so that's execution at its best in athletics. So it is similar in time trialing because it's it's you against the clock. Um, and in athletics, it is you against other other athletes. But but normally, um, if you're running with a you know in a marathon, for example, or even in a five k, you know you're still running against the competition. But you know your limitations as if you if you're wanting to run sixty seconds per four hundred meters and the race goes out in forty uh, fifty six, you know you need to be at the back of the field for that for that to be working to your benefit. You can't be at the front because you know you can't sustain that. So they're good examples of, um, of I think, um, um, for everybody listening out there that, you know, you, you, if you don't concentrate on your actual ability going into an event and understand your numbers, and, and I'm, I'm a big believer in racing the race and I'm a big believer in going by how you're feeling and then pinpointing all of that against your numbers and your actual actual what you have done in training and possibly on the better days you've ever raced but those combinations have to be taken in into consideration as a as a group not individually and so you have to keep making decisions and it doesn't matter whether you're in a little club race or um, or in a you know in a half ironman or a club road race or or a swimming event you've still got to decide how you're going to pace the thing according to how you feel and so I think I think at the elite level, guys are still making the same mistakes as age groupers are, um, but it's more it's more catastrophic because it's something that's on the big scene screen and and the whole world's watching, so it's almost more embarrassing for them. Um, so that's why I think you know I think it's great that Garant Thomas comes out and tells everybody that. Yeah, it's, it's, for it's sure. Brilliant. Yeah, and um, there is, there is there is uh, an argument for the fact that. Uh, on that stage specifically, you want to do your best performance ever. So that one out of a hundred times, um, you say, well, this is the time to win the Giro. And, and a lot of people might do that for their A race. This is my A race. I want to do better numbers than I ever have. But you don't do those better numbers in the first half. The argument's still the same. If you want to have your greatest race ever, you know, execute your numbers as well as you should until that last period when it really counts. And then that's when you do your PB. That's when you do your best power numbers ever. Yep, set your race up so that you can you use your power numbers at the start to not go into the red zone too soon and set your race up so you can actually race it properly and then then listen to all the splits that you're hearing in your ear because you can do something about it. But when you actually go into the red zone and you've ridden too hard early, 
you actually can't – you're pedaling squares. You, you can't change. The only thing you can do is go slower, um, which is quite frustrating and infuriating um, in, to be in that position. You, you're helpless. Um, and, yeah, there's just so many, so many good examples of, uh, you know, what's happening in the world that we can use in our, in our own, you know, little community of where we're racing and whether it's a club race or a, or a local triathlon. You know, these are so many good examples of, of even the best make these mistakes. So don't feel bad if you actually do similar things. But as long as you learn from, from what mistakes you're making and not repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, um, that's, that's going to be your downfall. And, and I see this happening so many times. I had a guy ring up saying, I think he'd done 15 Ironmans and, and his best Ironman was under 10 hours. So he's, he's quite a capable athlete. Um, and recently he'd done 13 hours and 12 and a half. So there's a big gap between his best and his worst. And he's saying, I'm sick of, I'm sick of doing mediocre results. I want to get back to where I was. And, um, I need to, I need to have a program that's going to, that's going to really help me, uh, concentrate on, on execution and getting the right fitness levels and, and understanding how to go about racing like I did before. And uh, I don't want to keep doing the same stuff I've done before. And, and, and that's the sort of, that's the sort of thing that we all should be learning from is, you know, this guy's done 12 of them or 13 of them poorly. And, you know, that's a lot of mistakes to make year after year. It's a lot of iron mistakes to make specifically. <laughs> it is. And, and it's excruciatingly um, a hard thing to go through when you're really not not able to function. You're at the mercy. You're on the death walk. You know, you're at the mercy of the event and you're just trying to get to the finish line, you know, so like it's a poor, half of a poor 50 minute 10K or something, you know. It's, that's it's right. Hard. Yep. Um, so, so they're examples of actually, you know, doing something about uh, understanding the situation you're in and changing, changing something up. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of guts to, to admit that you've, you're really stuffing up what you've been doing, um, you know, for literally a decade. Um, and now it's time to change. And, you know, my first thought is how did it take you that long to come to that realization? You should have been changing straight away. But but that's that's neither here nor there. The, f- the point is once you realize what you're doing can be changed, then that's that's the good point that you've, you've got to where you can actually now have a different approach to it. And, and you know, the outcome will be clearly improvement and, and the joy comes back into the, into the actual event. And, to, uh, you know, I see so many people have poor events and still want to come back again and, and try and, you know, beat their head against the wall with the same tactic. Um, imagine going into a race with a new tactic that's, that's, that's actually going to be effective and you're going to improve and, you know, you won't be able to take the smile off your face. And, and, that's what we're trying to get across is, you know, there are ways and means of going about things and, you know, what you've done in the previous, you know, doesn't mean you keep repeating that thing because it, it, there are better ways. Even for those who are doing very well, you know, you need to be open to learning if there's a better way of doing something. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And another really positive uh, thing I took from Garen Thomas's race was uh, – the fact that you know a couple he's had a couple of years of poor form. Uh, a lot of people kind of th- he said he's in the back end of his career. He might be washed up, and to see a result like this for um, what he's done the last couple of years uh, is just so encouraging. And more specifically, his age and he's thirty seven. Um, they kind of asked him at the end of the race, you know, what's next for you? Are you are you done? Are you are you um, going to keep racing? Are you going to do more Grand Tours? And he said, I don't know yet. But he said, I'm definitely not done. 
Um, he's seeking the Vuelta. He might like to have a crack at the Vuelta again. Um, he sort of said, I feel you know, I feel as good as ever. Uh, I feel like I can keep going. I feel like I can keep performing. And he's 37. And it just, it's just another example of you know, age not being a limiter. And there's just so many athletes out there that are peaking um, at, at 35 plus. And, um, you know, it shows what you can do. He's literally at the very top of, of elite cycling and Grand Tour cycling uh, at 37. And, and we just see... Yeah, so many people. Cavendish is just retiring at 38, um, but across sports all over the world, you know, Tom Brady famously played till he's 44 in the NFL, which is one of the hardest hitting sports. Um, Kelly Slater still competing on the World Tour circuit um, at 52, which is just crazy. Elliot Kipchoge, you don't don't forget, he's he's had kind of the, the best five years of his life, um, but he's 38 now, so you know, 33 to 38 is where he's really peaked. Serena Williams is uh, retired at 40. You know, she was still running Grand Slams and uh, easily the greatest um, tennis player. That, that tennis has ever seen um and she's you know winning grand slams from 38 to 40 41 and Mick van vluten is 40 multiple world champions still at the very top of her cycling game i'm just rattling off all these all these people who are who are um still peaking um at, at around this age nicholas spirig just broke the eight hour ironman the second woman to ever break eight hours for the ironman last year at 40 41 um, and i could just keep going but uh, I think it's really good examples of, of peeping, defying what we kind of perceive as age being a barrier, but I think it's just, it shouldn't even be a social um, kind of commentary anymore. Yeah, and um, I, I love the way Geraint Thomas doesn't let the incessant questioning about his age get to him. Um, he's got a great balance mindset. I, I'm super impressed. I, I didn't really know much about him, but I... Watching him lose this tour has given me more respect about that person and his personality than than seeing uh, all the victories that he's had over the generations. But but he didn't snap at uh, reporters, to always asking him, you know, are you too old? And he was very calm and, and he races like that. He's a very calm, balanced racer. You don't see him ever getting upset. Um, you know, Thibaut Pino is a classic example of someone losing the plot um, when there's people um, doing things that he doesn't want them to do in a race. Um, and yet, yet Geraint Thomas, you know, I thought his humility in defeat was in praise of Roglic was absolutely brilliant. Um, the sportsmanship he showed, um, I just thought was fantastic. He said Roglic was superior in the, the day that it counted the most and he deserved the victory. And I, and I have no excuses. He was better than me on the day. Um, and I just thought that was fantastic. Um, you know, his, his, his actual kindness and friendship he showed for Cavendish by doing a one and a half hour, one and a half kilometer pull to make sure that Cavendish got got a lead out proper because he only had one Astana rider helping him. And all of a sudden, here's Geraint Thomas from Ineos Grenadier sitting on the front telling Cavendish to get on his wheel and taking him to 800 meters to the to the finish. And Cavendish goes and wins and breaks the, the world record for the most Grand Tour victories in the history of cycling. Um, what a great thing to do. And uh, I'm, Cavendish was so emotional about what um, Geraint Thomas had done for him. Um, he couldn't speak about it. He was so he was in tears, um, saying how how grateful he is for that friendship kind act that Geraint Thomas did. So I'm really impressed with him as a, as a human being, and I really hope that he keeps going and and uh, get some more success. Mm, that that was so awesome to see. And he, he he put up a post and said, "Well, if I can't win, I want to try and help a mate win." And he could have sat in the peloton and sulked, and and he's he's lost a Grand Tour by 14 seconds, you know, and he didn't. He said, "Oh, what am I going to do here? I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to go help a mate." And it was. It was so awesome. It's what the sport is all about to me. Um, yeah, absolutely loved it. 
And I want to mention that we're talking about the people at the very top of the world here. We're talking about world champions at, at this age. But it has to be said that for our own athletes, you know, we don't just see one or two athletes improving with age. We have many, many, many examples of, of athletes pushing their best cycling power numbers, pushing their best cycling speed, pushing their best run performances at 56 or 58 compared to where they were at, at 50 or 52. Um, and they're not anomalies. It's so common. And so it's just really encouraging to know that and to understand that's possible. And for uh, you as an as a athlete, you know, you can improve and you can keep going. And, um, <clears throat> it doesn't have to necessarily, you don't have to believe that um, performance will just continually decline. And that's, you know, factually, VO2 max does decline with age, but that doesn't necessarily dictate performance. So I think that's really important to be said. And it kind of leads us to the final part of the topic we wanted to talk about. And that's, you know, age group groupers versus pros. And um, not you don't really don't want to underestimate the toll of training, you know, and pros train so hard. They train long, they train hard, they train for so many hours. And if we try to emulate that, we're really going to set ourselves up for failure because what pros do outside of training is they recover. They rest, they recover, they sleep, they eat. Um, and that allows them to train so hard and so long. Yet, us as age groupers and amateurs, we lack the recovery. We we have to do we have to work outside of training. We don't get time to rest and sleep. Um, we have other other things outside of life, other external commitments. You know, working full time, full time families, um, just life admin. You know, we don't have things looked after after for us. You know, our, our bike mechanics aren't cleaning or maintaining our bikes. Um, we're not having potentially um, dietitians or cooks. You know, doing all our meals. So, um, it's really important to understand that. Um, you know, pros train hard and have more recovery and we shouldn't necessarily aim to aim to emulate that. Well, it's a big topic, George, and I, it's disappointing we haven't got a lot of time to, to, to dig deep into it, but um, I, I, I just really want everybody out there to understand. And uh, the example I'm going to give, um, fortunately, we had um, my eldest son, Liam, and their two children and, and Lani, um, Liam's wife, uh, here whilst... Um, he was in China with the race and um, watching the sleep uh, deprivation that, that they had each night with their 16-week-old uh, baby waking up every two hours at, at 10 p.m., 12 p.m., 2, 4, 6, um, it, it, it is just impacting on their functionality during the next day and and you know that fog that you feel from lack of sleep, um, and you know that you have to perform at work the next day or whatever your day um, has. And if you just put that on day after day, and this has been going on for pretty much sixteen weeks, um, and we got a glimpse of it for a week, um, and oh, it, it is so draining, and and it, it is impacting everything. And so to to not give that uh, kudos credit um, and and really understand the changes you need to make around your next day um, in, in just acting like nothing happened during the night, that, that's a, a recipe for disaster. For disaster. You, you absolutely have to um, give that the, the rating it deserves because, because it's impactful on everything and, and you will end up being run down so badly um, that you won't be able to train anyway and perform. So, so my message out there is, we want to have the best program possible. That that is our ultimate gain goal. Sorry, um, we we want to start with what is the ideal scenario for us. If if I've got every minute available to me and I don't have any outside uh, disruptions um, from work or from family or from injury from illness, what is the best program I can do? Right, let's start with that. Um, we put that up and and then we have to be 
absolutely ready to adjust at any given day on any given week in any given block. And if you're not willing to adjust and be flexible, then you will be on a journey that's going to be, you'll end up giving the sport away because you are so disillusioned with your lack of improvement because of the missed sessions. And we've always said that consistency is the key to, you know, consistency is king. Consistency is the key to improvement. If you can just maintain consistency, and I've had this discussion with many people who've started the program with me, and I'm saying, look, the one thing I want you to get really through your head is you just have to be consistent. And if you can get that going, then your progress will be so much quicker than you've ever imagined. Oh, the answer comes back to me. Oh, consistency, no problem with that. Is that all you're, is that all you're worried about? And boy, does that come back to bite people. Um, you know, looking at, at someone's training peaks uh, month where they've got possibly, you know, 35 sessions and they've done 12 of them. And, you know, as compared to someone who's been able to do maybe not the intensity they were meant to be doing because they had to adjust because of poor sleep or uh, lack of time, but they've managed to keep doing session after session. Um, and they end up with 30 out of 35. The person who's done 30 compared to the person who's done 12 is so much further down the track. Um, you know, they're building up layers of fitness. They're building up better resistance to load. Um, the person who's doing shorter, maybe harder sessions, but is not doing many of them, is actually going to stay pretty stagnant for a long period of time and not improve. Um, so, so there's so many, so many areas that we need to talk about with, um, with the toll that training takes on, on the age grouper, um, and how other things, uh, influence your performance, um, such as out, outside things as, as what I ex explained with, with just having a young family or, or you might have teenagers who are going through hard times where you've having to spend time, you know, going actually dropping them off at a party and waiting till 2am to pick them up and then you get not getting to sleep till 2.30 um, and that's a reality as a parent um, and everybody in the age group from 20 to 70 has is, is in one of those areas of young children, children who are teenagers or, or, or being grandparents for, for their children's children. So, so, you know, there are going to be disruptions all the time. And the message that I'm trying to get across is, yes, start with the best program and then be willing to adjust on a daily basis. And, and we talk about how you feel and how you feel is determined by what's happened to you in the last 12 hours, what's happened to you in the last 24 hours, what's happened to you in the last seven days. They all have an impact on what happens the next day. And don't just think, I had a bad sleep last night, I should be right. If you've had 15 days of great sleeps, you probably will be right. But if you've had 15 days of continuously the same interrupted sleep, I'm, my guess is you won't be right. So it's, it's okay not to do the session that's prescribed. You know, do something that's less intense, but make sure you do something. And that's my message across the board to, to people who are having trouble with, with coping with um, the program and their life, mm. and and there's so much to to dig into here. Yeah, it's ultimately it's about you know just basically being kinder to yourself and potentially lowering your expectations of what's realistically achievable. And of course, as you said, the motivated athlete wants to come into a program and 
and smash 12 sessions a week, you know, sometimes twice a day with, with a, a cycling session, a run off the bike and some strength and conditioning. But yeah, realistically, uh, understanding what, what, that we're not pros and, and being kinder to yourself about it. Because what happens is if you keep failing the program, if you keep failing sessions and you're expecting too much of yourself, it just leads to so much negativity. It seems, leads to just you beating yourself up, some negative self-talk, and you lose a lot of motivation. And, um, you know, we, we talk about this almost every year as we come into the winter months uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and the Northern Hemisphere just come out of their winter months. But you know, no matter where you are, you go through the same sort of motivation cycles where um, it starts to get tough to train in winter. It's cold, it's dark, it's wet. When you're training early morning or late night, you're often training in the dark. If you're training indoors, you know, it's still not comfortable. Uh, and it's really hard to get through these periods sometimes. So I guess, you know, what can you do about this as an age grouper? One is adjusting your mindset. But you know, what do you do here when, when there's these, your motivation starts to wane a little bit? Yeah, and and this is the time when you have to think, you know, the big picture. And there's going to be a summer. So, you know, if we if we just use the southern hemisphere as an example, we're coming into the the colder, getting darker in the mornings and getting darker at night periods. Uh, and you know, if if you're lucky to be in the, you know, closer to the equator, if you're using Australia as an example, you know, the temperature is not so bad as as it is in Tasmania or or in Victoria. Um, but but certainly you're going to be up against the elements and there could be periods where, you know, you can't train outside because it's just literally lashing down with rain or wind or or it's just really freezing cold. And um, you, you really need to come up with strategies and that's, that's what you do about it. You come up with strategies that are going to help you maintain your consistency. That's, that's how you should be thinking. What things can I do that are going to enable me to be as consistent as I want to be because the big picture is – summer will be here and the races that I want to do will be in my face. They'll be in one week's time. And I've got 16 weeks of winter or 20 weeks with winter and some spring where I can be as well prepared as I've ever been for the next period of, uh, of where I want to be in good form. Um, and so you, you want to think about things like the strategies I'm going to tell you are, think about things where your weaknesses are. That's my goal. That's my mindset. I've got to concentrate on what things did I do well. Let's take triathlon, for example. Running off the bike, I didn't do that very well last last season. I need to actually get stronger so that I can hold the pace I want to hold from the start of the run off the bike to the finish of the race rather than starting at a pace I should be able to do and then fading. What are the things I can do in winter to, to stop that from happening? Okay, be stronger in the back end of the run, which means do some more hills, do some more strength work as a runner, not do some intensity work, but be stronger so that your body can cope with the load and the pace that you're expecting to do on race day. Do some um, more their strategies. Do some more race specific um, intensity off the bike. You know, once a week, getting off the bike and running a five k at your at your half Ironman race pace or something. Yeah, you've just got to come up with strategies, and all of a sudden, your mindset's like. Oh, how exciting is this? If I start to think about, I want to be a better runner off the bike. Am I stronger? Uh, was I strong on the bike, or did I fade during the events last year on the bike? Um, therefore, I again use this period to become a stronger, more robust cyclist. Um, things like my high end um, is good when it's when it's uh, set out properly, but when it's it's uh, it's it's a race scenario where you've got so many things that are happening unpredictably. You need to actually do that type of specific stuff. And, and for example, Zwift crit racing is a great way of, of keeping your unpredictable reactive style of racing um, in check. 
and and become better at that during the winter. Um, and it's a great way to not have to do a training session. You're getting the same outcome where you're trying to ride at threshold with high over and under threshold efforts that are unpredictable in the race situation. You're getting the same session. So use these fun sessions to, to make your 12 to 16-week period a much better you look. I know that when we ran our Trivello handicap races, people were looking forward to a Thursday night race. They know it was going to be hard, but it was a fun thing because it was a handicap and the opportunity to win, if the handicapper got it right, was 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 really a good buzz. And because most of the people knew each other, um, even if you don't know each other in a in a Swift situation, um, it is still a competition. Um, that's going to push you to get the outcome that you want, which is to do an intensity session. And this is a strategy that you can use where you're doing a training session, but it's a race. And and they're the things that you're trying to strategize to make sure that you're getting the most out of the period where your motivation could possibly be low. Yeah, what you're really saying is is find a strategy that's going to motivate you specifically. So if that's picking a race between September and November um, and that's going to get you out of rut, having something to work towards and really focus on, then so be it. If that's, if that's picking a weakness and deciding to get stronger at that, then so be it. And that could be anything. You know, you might find that you're getting a bit stale on the bike or stale in your running and and maybe you want to do a period of where you get to focus on strength and conditioning for six to 12 weeks where you kind of back off the training a little bit and, and do some gym work and do some variety. Or at, what, I'm just using an example of whatever you can pick that's going to work for you and, and not put you backwards and not make you stop training and doing the necessary things to keep improving. But but trying to find different ways to go about your training where you can um, be a bit kind of yourself because you're not feeling as motivated uh, and pick a strategy that works. And we've spoken about the Swift Winter Series plenty of times, the Trivelo's Swift Winter Series that we do. And absolutely in those periods when most days you're not enjoying training, that Thursday night race becomes the highlight of the week and you look forward to it so much. Uh, handicaps are always fun because if they're done right, like you said, anyone can win. Um, and that's just an example of, of picking something and we're going to do it again this year because it really is just something motivating to, to look forward to over winter. You know, there's the endurance rides on Saturday morning on Swift. I also found them really motivating, you know, that you're getting your endurance ride in, you do a, a long warm up, then you, know, like you can do a hundred K in some of these, these big group rides and it always ends up at a race in the last 20, 20 or so K. Um, so you're getting this great fix of an endurance ride on Saturday and I look forward to them so much. And each week you're seeing sort of your progress of, you know, what was your normalized power for the entire three hours? What was your normalized power for or your average power for the last 20K? How did you actually go on the race? It's it's really motivating stuff. And I guess the last point I wanted to mention and finish on is that um, some of this uh, topic can also uh, uh, make you believe a false narrative that you always have to be motivated and that training always has to be enjoyable. Uh, and that's just a kind of a myth. And we don't want to um, we don't want to promote that myth. We're not trying to say that you need to be motivated all the time or, or it always needs to be enjoyable. Of course, we want to be enjoying the process. We want to enjoy training. Um, we want to you know, enjoy our racing. But you know, the reason that we train is ultimately to challenge ourselves. We're trying to push ourselves, to challenge ourselves, to stress our body so that we can get better. And that's not always going to be a positive process. In fact, it's kind of an inversely positive process where we're putting ourselves to a negative experience to get the positive reward from it and so i think that's really important to understand is that um if you're not enjoying training that's also okay you might have to go through a period where you're not enjoying it as much and that's kind of part of the suffer it's like okay well can i still train consistently that's my challenge can i still rock up to these training sessions when i'm not feeling like it and when it's hard and then if you can get through those periods that's a big reward in itself so i think that's a really important point to mention yeah, and uh, and having the the big picture uh, outlook is is really important, so that you can actually think your way through the the day and the and the week 
um, knowing that this is a couple of steps on the journey to where that November race is or that race next March. Um, so if you keep thinking about what am I going to feel like, you know, on the start line on that day and just say, oh, okay, I've got 17 weeks for me to turn turn my form around from what I've been doing the last two years. Um, and yes, there are going to be times where it's it's not an enjoyable experience. But as we've said, if you've if you can actually give yourself these strategies and have the goal of being as consistent as possible, because that's going to enable you to get, you know, more towards where you want to be on race day than than being inconsistent and just being, you know, uh, doing big efforts here and there. Um, so so we're really we're really pushing that point. It, it is not. A false mindset. It's it's realistically working your way through so that you can get through the hard periods because there's going to be periods where you know you, you're absolutely not feeling like doing anything, but you've just as I'm saying to people, just do 20 minutes. It doesn't matter how hard or easy it is. Just do something, and and a good reminder is just look back at where you've come from occasionally. What was I doing a year ago in terms of my performance, my average pace in the swimming pool, my average pace as a runner for 10K? What was my average power for 20 minutes? And if it's still the same as what it was then, then you've got something to work towards. If you found that in a year you've already gone up 15%, look back on that and use that as motivation. Say, wow, look where I've come from. And I didn't even realize that I've improved that much. But because you're so micro working you know, in the moment, you're not actually seeing where you've come from. Um, and there will be examples where you, you you might have been injured or ill or you haven't trained as well where you, you haven't improved. But I guarantee the majority of people will, if they've done a good program and they've been consistent and, and managed to, to work their way from, from 50 weeks of training, they will see where they've come from. And that is so motivating to say, right, if I've done that, what can the next year look like if I keep going the same way? Um, and these are these are really good ways of of understanding that, you know, as an age grouper, we've got a lot of negativity to prevent us from achieving. And and it's so impressive to see how well people do in these events, these big races that they've they've gone through anxiety and 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 stress to you know in work and their family and somehow they've got themselves unbelievably fit to compete as well as they possibly could and I take my hat off to to age groupers you know the pros have got it easy compared to the age groupers in my opinion because there's so much more adverse um, stimulus out there to prevent you from getting to where you want um, as compared to the you know the easier pathway don't underestimate how hard the the pros train but the pathway for them is easier than the average age grouper. Once they are in that position, the pathway to get there and to be an athlete yes. in a position to that you have all these things looked after you, then you're, you're pretty lucky. But there's a lot of people on the cusp of that pro category that are doing it just as tough. <laughs> and I, it kind of, Absolutely. kind of reminds me of that, um, I think it's Muhammad Ali quote. And I never understood it as a kid. And it was, I always didn't like the quote as a kid where it was, he's really famous for it. And he says, I hated every second of training. Um, I was miserable. I suffered through it all. Um, but he did it to be great, you know, and, and as I remember when I was younger, I just thought, why would you say that? Like, why would you bother training if you hated every second? You know, I wouldn't turn up if I hated every second, but yeah, you now understand what he was saying is that he, his goal wasn't to enjoy training. His goal was to be world champion. And so he was willing to suffer through every part to achieve that goal. And that's the extreme end. And that's not necessarily what we're saying, but 
um, he, he is saying that you don't have to enjoy the training if you've got an outcome that you're looking for. And um, just understanding that is, is a real element to consider. So I think we'll finish there. Is there anything else you want to finish up on? Yeah, I totally agree with that last point. And, and I, I'm glad you said that is the extreme because the other, the other extreme of that is I love what I'm doing and therefore the pathway is easier. And it is in life, if you love what you're doing, you will be better at it. Um, and it's a, it's a real credit to Muhammad Ali for the fact that he was so driven to be the best in the world that he was suffering immensely through his training because he hated it. Um, but, you know, how, how good is it when you actually love doing something and you will be better at it? Um, so so there's the, the two extremes where someone's really loving what they're doing and they absolutely get better and the person who's hating what they're doing just to get to the end result well, – I'm a big believer in that's that's just you know be okay with working hard and not enjoying some of the sessions, but still love what you're doing it and be more balanced. Um, I think that's my finishing point on this is for the age grouper who's who's got all these um, um, hurdles to cross to to get to to their end goal is to try to keep an evenness, a bit of a Geraint Thomas approach where. Well, you, you know, you're doing your best in the, in the circumstances. You're not going to be too extremely upset. You're not going to be too extremely angry. Um, and you're not going to be too extremely over the top about, about your successes. But you've got that evenness. And he races like that. And that's how we should be approaching a lot of our training and, and, our, and our racing. It, it, it's not our full-time profession. It's something we want to enjoy doing. So let's get a little bit more meaningful balance into it. And, and sure, we want to train hard and improve. But at the end of the day, if we're putting ourselves under stress and strain, we're actually not going to enjoy it that much and we're more than likely not going to uh, continue. So so there's the, the scenario and the conundrum, I think. For sure. I, um, I did butch the quote a little bit. The exact quote he said was, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit, suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. And he definitely did that. But yeah, I'm glad we provided two ends of the spectrum there and, and what it's about. So that's it for this episode. Bit of a long one again. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, we'll see you on the next one. 